0: You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 121. What's going on, guys? Hey, we got a guest today. Yes, we do. A new addition to the show. Yep. Well... Not necessarily a new addition to the show, he's one of the podcast founding members,
0: but he's uh, joining (laughs) us today. It's Patrick Pister. How are you doing today, Patrick? I'm doing very well. How are y'all doing today? Awesome. Uh, So you're you're podcast hopping from the HSNE podcast.
2: Yeah, I appreciate y'all having me on. Just a little special guest for the audience. (laughs) I'm sure the audience is really
0: happy. An audience if you'd like to hear me and jake and sometimes patrick 24 hours a day we have our own radio station jake will put a link in the show notes but um we're out there 24 7 and people are raving about how much excited it is at two o'clock in the morning to listen to and gas this week
1: <laughs> so you guys know the drill it's the first friday q a you guys ask ask questions we hopefully answer them um before we get to the question mark you want to talk about our on the road sponsors
0: yeah, real quick, Total Land, the world's most advanced field land management system. Without them, we would not be able to go to all the shows that we go. So if you're in that landman's world, check them out. Great people over there in Lafayette, Louisiana. And the Lee Heck Harrison, over three quarters of the uh, top oil and gas companies use Lee Heck, and Lee Heck Harrison for leadership and workforce transformation. If you're in that world, check them out. Once again, great company doing some really powerful stuff out there. If you'd like Jake and I to come talk to your school, your company event, your conference, your trade association, whatever, uh, reach out to us. We'll be sharing the details. We're stacking up for the fall. Uh, we have a special rate for for universities because we have a special place in heart for School. So
1: you want us to come talk to your, uh, your school, or your university, reach out to us, and let's get you in the calendar. Let's do it. All right. You guys ready? All right. Let's roll into these questions. Uh, First one is from a guy named Keith. That's all we know about him. He writes, (laughs) with the information overload about what is happening with OPEC and how exports are affecting price per barrel in the US, can you please just dumb down the whole thing and explain what is happening at a high level and why it's affecting oil prices in layman's terms? We'll go ahead and start with that part first, and then I'll come to the last part.
0: Uh, so this is it's a very simple question, and there's a lot of different people have a lot of different opinions on this. Basically, OPEC is a cartel, and they've controlled prices historically the same way that Beers controls prices with diamonds. They control supply. And so what has happened is, uh, as the U.S. and Russia has ramped up production, OPEC's hold on the rest of the world, particularly Europe, is slipping And OPEC recognizes this. And when I say OPEC, OPEC has a bunch of members. I I think it's 13 different countries make up OPEC. Um, But the biggest one is is Saudi Arabia. And the biggest company in that world is Saudi Aramco. And so, which, by the way, did y'all know that started off as a U.S. company back in the 70s? Really? Yeah, nobody knows that. It was a joint venture, I think, between Exxon and BP. Is Aramco. And and it was Exxon and BP doing work in the Middle East, and eventually Saudi Arabia bought a part of it, and bought some more, and eventually bought the whole thing. Anyway, little Saudi Aramco history there. So what's happened is OPEC itself is realizing it doesn't have the chokehold that it once had, and it's getting harder and harder to control supply and harder and harder to control prices. And so they they did a little bit of an experiment um, about three years ago where they did nothing. Everybody talks about well, what OPEC did, but they did nothing. They just didn't cut production, which caused the glut on the market and the prices to drop. And you'll have a bunch of people tell you how OPEC was doing that to hurt the frackers in the U.S., and that's not true. Um, at that point, we couldn't even export our own oil, right? It wasn't legal to. Um, OPEC did that for uh, political reasons. OPEC uses oil prices the same way the U.S. uses battleships and aircraft carriers as a weapon. And so what's happening now is is they're losing their ability to have as big an influence, and they they realize that. So they're what they're doing is they're trying Other and when I say they, I really mean Saudi Arabia is trying other ways to monetize. So they're starting uh, to uh, refine their own products, which they've never done before. Um, They're looking into uh, different markets, exporting to different markets. They're looking to get into the LNG world, all in a way to kind of delay the eventual destabilization OPEC, which I think is happening, which I, if you listen to the show, I've been saying for a long time, I think it's already happening. You've seen what's going on in Venezuela, which is OPEC member. We unfortunately predicted that three years ago that when these low crude crisis hit, that it would eventually cause a fall of the Venezuelan government. So long story short, um, OPEC still has... A big piece of the market, but they don't have total domination of the market share anymore. And so they're having to shift their business into other parts of the industry, such as, as refining and downstream, in order to keep the revenue flowing. Um, because the problem with most OPEC countries, specifically Saudi Arabia, is that they have to keep their youth employed. And if they can't keep their youth employed, they know they're going to radicalize and overthrow the government. And that keeping their youth employed, those social problems have a big cost, and they have to make sure they can always fund that. So I hope that kind of answers the first question. What's the second part of that question? The
1: second part of that is he writes, uh, in addition, I would also be curious to hear what the possible scenarios look like moving forward, regardless whether they are positive or negative for our industry. I keep hearing mixed messages from people I know in the industry that seem to understand what is going on, but have totally different perspectives on what the future will look like the remainder of this year and into next year.
0: Yeah, so, so we're in a hydrocarbon abundant world, and OPEC has no control over that. Hydrocarbon's everywhere. Oil and gas are everywhere. And we're, the technologies are there to help get them out the ground effectively and economically, depending on the maturity of the infrastructure. So, for example, here in the U.S., we have all the roads and, and all the pipelines to a lot of the fields out there so we can move that crude around economically. You can't do that right now in the Middle East. You can't do that in China. So they have the same... Uh, shale plays that we have, and they 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 understand the technology to the point they can get it out the ground. They just can't do it economically yet, but they will get there. So what's happening is is we're we're in a long term low crew price environment that could change if something major happens, such as a war in the Middle East, uh, such as um, you know de- destabilization in the Pacific because of North Korea. Uh, depending on what happens with. With Venezuela, you know, we definitely don't want the Russians and the Chinese stepping into Venezuela. We prefer the U.S. to step in there and help them stand up a democracy. Any one of those things plus another hundred other things could drive the prices up. But that driving the prices up will be a temporary uh, spike in the market. And if that happens, you can see countries and companies grab market share that they typically don't have so for instance if there's a war in the middle east a lot of the middle east production will will slow down or stop and russia and the u.s will then capture that part of the market and then prices drop back down we will still have that you're seeing it happen right now with russia and europe you know europe depends on the gas supply from Russia uh, to run their to run their industry. And you're starting to see imports of LNG from the U.S. just now start to arrive to Europe, which means we're just now starting to chip away at that Russian chokehold on Europe. And the European people want us to do that. Obviously, the Russians don't want us to do that, um, which I think that's going to bring the Russians and the U.S. back to the negotiation table, which I think is actually a good thing. So long-term-wise, uh, you know, we're in a low crude price environment. Companies gonna have to drive efficiencies, which is already happening. You know, the new eighty-dollar barrel is now fifty, and and we're gonna
1: stay that way for for extremely long time. Awesome. All right, let's move on to the next one. (laughs) All right, everybody's still there. We didn't lose anybody. All right, next question from somebody named Clavier. He's an operator at Halliburton. He writes, with a shortage of talent in the oil and gas industry, why are companies not streamlining their application process and using new technology? Nobody wants to sit in front of their computer for three hours answering behavioral (laughs) questions just to wait another month for a background check. That's a really, really good question.
0: It is a good question. And, And what it is, Clavier, is it depends on the company. So Big Red, Halliburton's a big old ship. They're starting to hire again. Uh, All the service companies are starting to hire again, especially in in the U.S. And that's their process. And you've heard me talk about this before. This industry hates change. So this is the way Halliburton's always hired. This is the way they will continue to hire until one of their competitors does it better and starts taking talent away from them. And I'm seeing this right now, Jake and Patrick. I don't know if y'all are seeing this, but a lot of these smaller companies that are coming in to our industry don't have this sort of, you know, office nightmare of people having to sit in front of their computer for three hours. This allows them to be more nimble when they hire. It makes the hiring experience much more enjoyable for the people they hire, so they tell their friends, and eventually, that will work its way to the big service companies, and literally everybody, where they will have to change the way the actual process used to hire people just to be competitive. Right now, they don't have to do it because there's more labor on the market than jobs but when it's a flip-flop and I think it's going to flip-flop at the very end of this year in north in the US then they're going to have to change things and they
2: will watch yeah mark and I'll I'll add to that you know I, my wife and some friends live in this space with recruiting but the process that they put in place is actually it's it's recent they're they're shifting more online and trying to automate everything so if you can force your applicants to go through a application process where they're re-inputting the data into their system now they're looking at metrics all right how many applicants had a had an MBA how many had a college degree how many had a high school diploma unfortunately they're getting more towards being able to look at the metrics and not looking at the individual until they get past that application process then they start looking more at the individual and they they had a personal touch but that first gate that you have to get through it's it's they're actually being very efficient but they're being efficient on their end of things they want to see 150 uh, candidates whittled down to five key metrics and then they can you know push the top 10 percent to the next group
0: yeah you know it's funny you brought that up on our old oil and gas careers podcast I actually had a chance to actually talk I'm not going to say what company. Well, it's the largest super major out there. How about I say that? And this guy worked in HRIS, so basically IT for HR. And he was telling me the system they used to screen online applications. And so I was actually able to break it down, and, and we were able to tell people things like make sure it's a PDF document, make sure that on the very first Part has your name, email address, and phone number. Uh, make sure that you, you go and read the application, find the keywords, make sure those are in there. Because that's all stuff that the machines are looking for. But the reason they did this is they told me that when they would open up a job, one job, it was not uncommon for them to have anywhere from 50 to 70,000 applications the first 24 hours because they were such a big company and no human could sift through all of that. So they had to use software to sift through that. And like you said, Patrick, once it sifted through that, then it would move over to where it was people going through the resumes and then eventually actually having that impersonal touch. So, so Clavier, you may want to do a little research around the best way to structure your online application so that you make it through the software
1: constraint. Yeah, best of luck with that because <laughs> it's all top secret. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I actually
2: think I think that I think the next question we get to will be touching on different ways to navigate an application process versus going other routes. So, so then yeah, this next question is from
1: uh, Mahir Anadusula. I don't know if I pronounced it right or not, but hopefully, uh, he's a student at Texas A and M. He writes, "Hi guys, live the show. Definitely learned a lot about the industry during my morning commutes to work and school. Keep up the great work. I'm a junior chemical engineering student at Texas A and M." My first question is, do you think LinkedIn is a resourceful website when it comes to reaching out to recruiters, when it comes to searching for a job slash internship? Let's start with that Okay, let me answer this one
0: because I got a great answer for this. So to answer your question, really, no, but yes, in a different way. I've done this with a lot of people in the last couple of years, and it works really well. So when you see a job being posted somewhere... Try to figure out who that hiring manager is, right? So if you see a job being posted for Chevron uh, on land and they're looking for a project manager, that's probably Chevron's mid-continent business unit. So then go on LinkedIn and look up the company Chevron and find who you think the hiring manager would be for that position. Then reach out to him and offer him something of value and start a relationship with him online. If you do that, and it's a non-salesy, non-spammy sort of way, because remember, everybody's busy. Eventually he'll ask you what's going on with you, and you tell him that you're looking for a job on land as a project manager. He'll go, "Well, we're hiring." And um, I've done, I've talked this through with a lot of people, and it actually works in a much higher percentage of the time than you actually applying for that job on the Chevron website or through LinkedIn. So I think l- using LinkedIn to do research to try to figure out who that hiring manager is or who it might be, and then starting a relationship with them, I think it's very valuable. Not real sure about actually reaching out to people direct. Um, when it comes to as far as the job or internship, what, what do y'all two
1: think about that? You know, I think, I think it always comes down to giving something before actually asking. So, you know, you want to, as Gary V would say, you know, jab, 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 right hook. So the jab is being providing value to somebody else and the right hook is actually going for the ask. Yeah. I think, I think you need to develop some kind of relationship just because so many people are sending just these straight spammy. to the straight to the point, spammy, yeah. Hey, I need something. Give me, give me, give me messages on LinkedIn. Um, that you want to stick out from the crowd, you know? Yeah. What do you- and, and I'll give you a good example. So, Mir, you actually reached out to me,
0: and we actually set up a phone call, and I talked you through how you can take your chemical engineering degree and apply it to some of the big data stuff. But the reason I did that is when you reached out to me, you were genuine, and you said, hey, I'd like to tell you what's going on at A&M University maybe see if I can get you to come speak. Well, that's valuable for me and Jake, so I answered it. So you can take that same approach – with the hiring manager and if you know if we go back to my example about you know he's works for chevron mid-continent business unit you know find a a article about um, what the capex expenditure is for all the operators on land in the u.s that's something to be very valuable that guy that's something be easy for you to find that he doesn't have time to search for you search for it, you send it to him say hey i think this might be useful to you you do that
1: two or three times and i promise you'll ask you you know what's going who are you or what's going on with you or how can i help you So the second part of this question is, uh, it's a little bit longer, but let's jump into it. He writes, recently I came up with an idea for a carbon sequestration process. I have my own research group at Texas A&M, which will study this process further for potential industrial use. Uh, The premise behind it is that we will take CO2 from flue gas and turn it into a material that can be sold after a certain reaction is done. My question to you is, is there a market for this idea, considering that the final product will be produced in mass quantities and thus decreasing its market value? If things really take off and... Yes, and I don't have a lot of work to do still, but is the process really worth it? Is there a market out there? So, this is a guess, right? I've done no market research around this, but
0: when I see what's going on in the world, I see all the major oil and gas companies, um, or all, let me say all the super majors, and probably about 70% of the nationalized oil companies all wanting to have positive discussions about carbon dioxide and about either taxing it or working out some cap and trade program. Now, the reason I think they're doing it, and their heart's in the right place, right? It's it's the public thinks that's important. Uh, I don't necessarily think it is, but the public does. And so that's part of it. The other part of it, the, the single biggest way to reduce carbon dioxide emissions in the world right now is a switch from coal to natural gas or electrical generation. So if you do that, you have to buy that natural gas from somebody. Well, that's what, all well, the gas companies produce natural gas. So I think there's a market reason they do that. Regardless, you know, when you sequester carbon, you're basically taking carbon dioxide or other forms of carbon and then turn it into something that is typically a solid. So you have something that you take this carbon dioxide gas and you turn it to some type of long-term storage device. And now that carbon is locked up. Do I think there's a market for that? Yes, Absolutely. Just like I think there's a market for renewable fuel credits, do I think that markets could be artificially propped up by governmental laws and taxation? Yes, just like the renewable fuel credits. The renewable fuel credits, there's no use for them, but it's an artificial market propped up by our government's laws and the way we tax things. Do I think it's worth it? That's going to be a hard one to tell. The, The biggest thing is where are you from a maturity point of view if you're too soon to the market you nobody's gonna buy anything from you you're gonna run out of cash and go belly up if you're too late somebody bigger news could beat you to it but if you time it just right I, I think there is I mean I know there is a market for this especially here in the U.S. and, and, and in Europe because it's coming um, and we're actually gonna talk about uh, later on about Canada it's, there's a market already there for Canada so yeah there's a market for it just a matter like
2: anything else can you time the market right and, and funny enough, I actually have done some market research on this recently, Mark. <laughs> I, was, I was surprised when I saw the question come across. Um, carbon sequestration is starting to gain popularity. People are talking about it more. So I think it's in, if there is a market, it's, it's on the emerging side of things. And I would also point, mirror to our oil and gas HSC podcast number 45, where we were talking with uh, uh, Blake Scott. And they're doing something similar with cuttings. Oh yeah, so the, yeah, yeah. Good job and great so, job. So it's pushing a, people back to our HSE podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a different if it's a different product at the end and it's a different process. But um, you may want to reach out to Blake Scott there and find out what the process was for them. You know how they went through all the hurdles that you're going to have to jump over bringing this type of technology to market. And there may be a partnership there. But yeah, check out um, OGHSE number forty-five. Yeah, good stuff.
1: Awesome. So, next question is from Andrew Griffith. Uh, Griffith, he's a money manager in Connecticut. Uh, he writes, "Jen, I'm a new listener and really enjoy the podcast. On the episode that kicks off with the EQT slash Rice deal, you were talking about that you about your doubt that oiling gu- up oil and gas companies will utilize AI by 2020. I agree. It sounds pretty far fetched, but the contract jewelers are already doing some pretty interesting things with cognitive learning." Check out page twenty-seven of Precision's investor deck, and he sent us a link to it. Um, so I read through that. I don't know if you had a chance to or not, Mark. I did too. I, what do you think, Jake? I think it's actually a pretty good pitch deck. It's long, right? But yeah, I think they yeah. did a pretty decent job on this. So I, you know, I think the world that I live in is the world of operational data for EMPs, um, and so usually when I talk about AI, that's usually kind of what I'm referring to because you're dealing with large amounts of data across. A billion different data sources and you're trying to actually aggregate information so actually applying ai to that is pretty far-fetched at this point in time because there's really not any really good technology out there uh, for solving the whole data aggregation problem first right without going off into a tangent there i think you can apply ai and deep learning to certain very very specific data sets and i think drilling is going to be a good example of that i don't think precision is the only ones doing it either but yeah, I also think the geoscience is another place where they're able to
0: clean up that data, right, and then use AI to help them see things. Like so we talked about in the last show where BP found, what was it, 200,000 barrels of oil on an existing reservoir they didn't know they had that was yeah. they were basically blind to. So I will tell you this much, uh, Andrew. The potential, Jake says this all the time, but the potential for AI and cognitive and machine learning is unlimited right now in oil and gas. Uh, Jake says we're in the first inning of the baseball game, but they haven't even finished singing the national anthem. He's right. I mean, (laughs) you'll have vendors out there that say they have their hands around this. They don't. And our industry is looking at knowing the benefit is there. They just haven't figured it out yet. And anytime you're in that position where a large global industry like oil and gas knows that there's potential
2: there and the vendors haven't figured it out yet, but everybody's trying to, it means there's a lot of opportunity. So it's, it's all good stuff. And just what you said, you know, you and Jake about we're being, you know, in the first inning, not even in the first inning of this. I'm, I'm so skeptical when I hear AI because that term is n- is very loosely defined as far as what, what constitute AI and it's and machine learning. Uh, it's nice to see this is coming from precision because I would say drillers are typically going to be the mo- more risk adverse. Um, but Mark, you and I talked to uh, NOV that even some of the automation that they have on their drilling equipment and well control equipment that they want to put out there, the. The drillers and the operators are scared of it. So even if it is smarter than the people doing the job, they they w- don't want to pull the trigger and give control over. Yeah, and it's going to take time to penetrate the market. It's um, you know, think about the Iron Roughneck. That thing had to be on the market for at least fifteen years before people start adopting it. Maybe longer, maybe twenty. But yeah, I, I, people just use the term AI a lot, and I think in machine learning and AI, it's being used to. How well, you, you and I were watching something. Somebody had used the uh, Alexa to scrape data off the internet and they were calling it an AI well that's just it's just no, a tool actually it was, aggregating. it was yeah
0: it was um natural voice recognition combined with analytics it really was not artificial intelligence
2: yeah but they're but somebody's calling it artificial intelligence yeah right. And, and you see a lot of that
0: right now, just like data scientists. All of a sudden, everybody and their brother's a data scientist. <laughs> you're not. You can't just say you're a data scientist because you've touched some, some big Excel spreadsheets. There's actually a methodology to that education. But anyway, yeah, but, that's part Jake, of the... Are,
2: Jake, are you seeing companies are more receptive to wanting to get into machine learning, even if they don't quite know what AI machine learning is?
1: Uh, I, think, I, I think it's still too early. I think it's something that they don't necessarily want to talk about because it's something that's not quite defined like we were just talking about. Whenever I think AI, I don't think Siri being able to answer basic questions. I think something being able to displace an engineer or somebody who's on a rig and being able to actually make intelligent decisions. I'm talking about true artificial intelligence, something that we haven't reached. Like Apple has not reached it yet. Google has not reached it yet. So I think it's a long ways off being able to do some pretty basic things based on certain scenarios that they have done in the past with some basic deep learning. I don't really call that AI, AI. You know, I think of AI in like the sci-fi sense of like being able to really make a difference. Skynet, I'm telling you, it's coming. <laughs> Did you guys? Okay, this is a little tangent on AI. Did you guys see the uh, the huge fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg? Yep. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. All right, next one. Uh, question from Adam Erickson. He's an operations manager at C E L Electric. He writes, "I live in." Man, I cannot pronounce that. He lives in Canada. Uh, Saskatchewan. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I listen to your podcast all the time. I uh, even won one of the offshore uh, bags from Red Wing. Thanks for that. It's pretty awesome. i like to take, I'd like your take on the following article.
0: So let me jump in here. This article is about how CIBC says that new technologies will reduce the cost, environmental impact of new sense project over the next five years in Canada. And they're absolutely right. This is one of those things that that I wanted to talk about, and we're gonna actually talk about it a little bit later, but basically there's a new technology out there. And so um, this new technology, and I'll get deeper into a later question, this new technology is going allow oil sands to reduce their costs by about 30% and reduce their greenhouse emissions by about 80%. Um, and it's really cool stuff, and it's legit. It's already been proven. Now here's the really kind of interesting thing about this. So Cana- C- Canada <laughs> so <Canada's laughs> has a left-wing and right-wing party just like we have in the U.S., but their left-wing party is way further left than ours. They're true socialists. And they're, that's basically who's in power right now. And they actually brokered a deal with oil and gas companies, and they came to an agreement, like together. That's crazy. If they can do it, why can't we do it? And so the oil and gas companies goes, what do you want? You want less greenhouse gases, and you want to protect the environment. Well, we have this new technology. If you help us with this new technology, we can do both of those. And so they came to agreement, and they're working together. And so the oil and gas industry is benefiting from this in Canada, in oil sands. The government is getting what it wants, which is reduced greenhouse gases. And the people initially got what they wanted, which was more jobs being created. But then the leftist party decided that not only were they tax carbon for every company, but also individuals. So they would figure out Jake and Patrick's carbon footprint and tax you. Now, all of a sudden, the people in Canada don't think it's such a good idea. So their right-wing party is playing upon that. But my big thing is you got the oil and gas industry to work hand-in-hand with the left party, and they made an agreement that made everybody happy. That's incredible. Leave it alone. So that, that's what's going on right now in Canada, and I, and I think it's, it's really cool. And you talk about what's the biggest difference between the – oh, that's the next question. I'll let you read the next question. I'll answer it.
1: Yeah, so it's, uh, on a bigger note, I'd like to hear about what you think about the difference between Canada and the U.S. in regards to the oil and gas industry. What I should be looking for is opportunities or even think about uh, the future of Canada at the moment kind of at a higher level.
0: Yeah, so Canada has a lot of heavy oil, which we need here in the U.S. Getting out the ground has been very expensive, but that's getting ready to change extremely quickly. Canada's biggest opportunity is export, both the East Coast and West Coast, both LNG and their heavy oil. So there's a lot of opportunity, there, everything from storage to pipelines to terminals. You know, Canada doesn't use all the oil and gas that it can produce, so it's export to the rest of the world, and that's good for the Canadian people. So that kind of a thirty-foot level—that's the difference. Here in the U.S., we have a bunch of oil and gas. It's dirt cheap now, and technologies only make it cheaper. We use a lot of it, but we also can export a lot of it. So that—that's really the kind of the basic difference between the two markets there, and, and the environmental concerns too, right? It gets really
1: cold in Canada. It gets cold here too, but not like it does in Canada. And the third part, he writes, and since I'm writing, I've got one more question. What's happening with Crescent Point? There was an article roughly a year ago saying that they were the best oil and gas company in the world. You refuted it saying Exxon, I think, was, um, but still very impressed with Crescent Point. Their share price has done nothing but fall from that time, and I'm wondering what you think of them now. So I still think they're a great company. Comparing Crescent Point to Exxon is not really fair. When I say
0: I think Exxon is the best oil and gas engineering and project management company on the planet, I mean it. But it's the part of their scope, nobody can get drill skill in Nigeria as quickly as they can get in Homa, Louisiana, except Exxon, just because they're so big. Crescent's much smaller. The thing about Crescent is they have a very simple three-part business strategy. They want to enhance their own production, and they spend money and resources doing that, and they do it every year. Then they want to acquire resources that fits their model, so they're very good at doing their due diligence. And then they manage risk. Probably better than almost any company out there, and and they manage risk by maintaining a healthy balance sheet. Which in the oil and gas industry, especially for a company the size of Crescent, is kind of rare. That's what you see with like bigger companies. Um, the reason their stock's taken hit is like everything else, it's because of what their shareholders think, not necessarily exactly how the company's performing. As far as I remember, Crescent has never missed missed a production target. Never. That's unheard of. And so they maintain a healthy balance sheet. That also means there that if you go invest in them, because if I remember right, isn't Adam. No, Adam's not an investor. No, he's an operation manager. So from an investor point of view, it's almost like they're not interesting because they do good work all the time, so there's less swings to their shareholder price, which means it's harder to make money unless you have a long-term play. But I'm a big fan of Crescent. Now, the funny thing is, when we get to the bag winner, it's strange how we have these tie-ins.
1: But anyway, we'll get there in a little bit. Great question, Adam. Okay, on to the next one. Uh, We got a question from Von Tajarian. Uh, he's a student at NYU Stern School of Business. Uh, he writes, Hi, I recently started listening to all of your podcasts and find them very valuable. I'm currently a college student at NYU Stern School of Business. I invest in fracking companies in the U.S. by trying to find undervalued companies. I'm still relatively new to the industry. and would like to ask you if you have any recommendations of books that can teach myself about the industry a little bit more in depth, as well as I'm familiarizing myself on the new technology being used, specifically what you guys are discussing uh, about the algorithms uh also do you guys have any insight on companies like oas and wpx oas posted a better than expected income but the share price dropped which is absurd thank you hope to hear from you
0: (laughs) yeah so vaughn go to modalpoint.com go to learn the oil and gas industry and you'll see the books that we recommend it's uh, oil and gas industry a non-technical guide the global oil and gas industry management strategy and finance oil 101 the moral case for fossil fuels and there's a bunch of publications you can subscribe to for free um that's so many people have asked me this exact question. We actually built a website. That's the best place for you to go. Maybe Jake will remember to stick a link in the show notes to that. As far as um, as OSX, that's Oasis Petroleum. I-, I think Vaughn's now trying to get some investor advice. Just everybody be warned out there. We are not official uh, investor advisors. This is just what I think. Uh, Oasis, right now, I would buy in a, in a heartbite. I-, I would say it's a strong buy. Um, I think there's a lot of upside there. Um, and then. Um, um, WPX, what is WPX? WPX Energy is, is what that is. Um, I'm not as familiar with them. It's, it's. Um, I'm not sure that I, I can even give a recommendation on them one way or the other. So do your due diligence, Vaughn, and figure out what you want to do with WPX. But Oasis, I would buy right now.
1: Yeah. Other than that, I mean, your, your list of books is fantastic for anybody who's coming to in the industry. If you want anything else, addition, like anything that's covering more technology, there's really not a whole lot out there. I'm going to be honest, because I check pretty much all the time. But if you go to Amazon and just type in, go to books, type in oil and gas, what's on there is what really is out there. I mean, there's not near as much as there is about other industries, but that's always a good place to start as well.
2: And in, there's a good online resource as a companion to any of these books. Uh, Schlumberger's got a great oil field glossary. So, if there's any terms that are oilfield specific that you're not sure about, uh, Google Schlumberger's oilfield glossary, and it's got a, you know it's it's just a dictionary of oilfield terms.
0: Yeah, they also have an app, at least for iOS, where you can uh, just search
2: from your phone. I use that all the time. So I'm sure it's a good point, Patrick. It's very useful. Yeah, I didn't care for the app too much. You've got you've got to be very specific. It, it's not like Google where you can do some misspellings and it'll pull up the most relevant stuff. You have to be you have to be right on and spelling words. Spud and tower, maybe uh, <laughs> you may not find what you're looking for.
1: All right. So next question is from here on a Dasula again, but with a different email address. So let's let's go into this. He's writing in regards to sponsorship in regards to something that we said, I believe, last week about OGGN and becoming more of a magazine type publication. Right. So he writes uh, Kanika. I think it's the company currently. just is no a advertising. huge company, by the way. They're huge. Currently does no advertising. We're trying to get our name out there in the oil and gas industry. About 30% of our product is in the division I work with. Apical uh, goes to oil and gas. I don't know if I'm saying that right, Mark. Um, Apical is a polymide film that is used in drilling equipment because of its ability to withstand extremely high temperatures and pressures underground. Please let me know what we can do to get our name out to companies in this magazine. All right, so two things. I'm going to let Patrick jump in and just kind of a high-level talk
0: about getting name recognition in our industry. And then I'll tell you how you can actually get your product or
2: service in oil and gas global network online magazine. Yeah. So he's specifically asking about advertising, but when you look at advertising versus marketing advertising it, you can turn on the tap with advertising and and get some kind of flow of customers in, but it's not long-term lasting gains. Um, I focus more on, on the marketing side of things and it's really just exactly what the OGGN magazine website is doing. It's providing value to the market. So instead of somebody looking at your website as a product catalog or a billboard about your business, they're viewing it as a valuable resource that's helping them solve problems before they're ready to engage with you or one of your competitors. The the, the new name of the game in marketing is providing value to the market. Yeah. And Patrick, isn't this what you do with Lean Oilfield? This is exactly what I do with Lean Oilfields. We, uh, we take... Uh, companies, you know, however big or small, and we help them develop a marketing strategy. We we help them implement that strategy. Whether you know, some of them lean on us completely, and others want to do some of it themselves. Um, but again, I make the distinction: there's advertising, there's marketing, but everything should work together. Whether you're doing conferences, uh, advertising, billboards, anything, it, it all needs to intertwine and work together, and not just be standalone. You put out an ad here and there. Again, all you're doing is turning on the tap. And as soon as you're done paying for the advertising, that that, that flow of customers, potential customers, is going to turn off.
0: Yeah. So, Mir, and anybody else out there that's wanting to increase their sales, just reach out to Patrick, have a conversation with him. He, he can talk you through this. As far as getting on our OGGN website, The website's being refreshed. We should be finished this week. And what we're doing is we're inviting all of our listeners and their companies. If you want free exposure to our enormous global audience, when I say enormous, up to 360,000 people that work in the oil and gas industry in 178 different countries, all you got to do is reach out to me. Um, We're letting you post stuff up for free. Um, We won't let it be salesy. It has to be educational. We prefer short videos. The website will have a a media page to tell you exactly what you can and cannot do so it's very easy but it's a way for us to kind of give back to our audience and give you some exposure to the audience that you helped us build so reach out to me i'm happy to share details Uh, it's a very easy thing to do and i think it's very worthwhile we actually i just shot some video we actually had somebody on one of the podcasts um who's had a listener reach out to his company after hearing them on the podcast and they closed a million and a half dollar deal how cool is that
2: Really? That's pretty yeah. amazing results. Yeah. Now, the
0: funny thing is, then they reached back out to me wanting to be back on the podcast and I had to tell them that every time <laughs> you're on the podcast does not mean you'll close a million and a half dollar deal.
1: <laughs> but they did this one time, which I, I think is really cool. So um, next one, Jake. All right. Next question is from Will Flores. He writes, Hi, Mark. Uh, trust you well. I've been listening to the podcast for about six months and it's really engaging. I live in Australia, but I'm an associate to an oil and gas trading firm in Singapore. Uh, we are doing well, but I'm wondering if your services apply to traders. Looking forward to hearing from you.
0: Yeah. So if you're, Will, if you're asking about modal point, no, we, we, traders we, we, doesn't really, we, there's not much we can actually add value there. Um, if you're talking about oil and gas global network, um, like I said, we would love to have you on, on the network. We would love to have you put some content together about what you're doing in Singapore and stick it on our website for free. And then we would give you a bunch of exposure, which, which would cost you nothing. And if you're doing trading, the more exposure
1: you get to more potential trading partners, probably the better. So reach out to me. We'll be happy to share those details as well. Uh, next question is from John Moore. He's an analyst at BBVA. I've heard Mark talk about how expensive oil is dead, deep water, ultra deep water, oil sands, etc. What role do you think technology will play in bringing these resources back to the market? And when do you think it will happen? Keep up the great work.
0: Yeah. Here's another analyst trying to get some insider information that they can write a report <laughs> on and sell to their clients, which I'm, I'm joking, John, if this is valuable to you, go ahead and use it. So I talked about what happened oil sands just a minute ago. So, now I'm going to change my prediction, right? So you've heard me for three years say that oil sands is dead with this new technology, which is basically they use a solvent with a very specific molecular weight. They drill two horizontal wells through the, I mean horizontal, yeah, wells through the oil sands. The top one they pump the solvent through, which then drips down through the formation into the bottom one. Then they pump the oil out, and because the solvent has a very specific weight, they can filter the solvent back out, and they're left with the oil, and then they reuse it. The old way of getting that. Oil sands oil out was either you strip mined it, which was horrible for the environment, they pump steam in the ground and doing the same thing, once again, which released a lot of uh, carbon dioxide to the air. So here's a perfect example of where just three years ago, I said oil sands is dead because it's expensive, with some new technology, which has been implemented and approved by the Canadian government, and some major players are implementing this stuff literally right now, they're bringing this oil sands at a a 30% cost reduction and about an 80% reduction in CO2 emissions. So there's a perfect example of how technology in a space of three years has taken something that I said was dead and now made. It viable to the market. That will continue to happen. Now, the problem with deep water and ultra deep water, you're not dealing with just chemistry like you did with the oil sands in this solution. You're dealing with physics, depth, pressure, temperature. So coming up with a sh- simple technology solution to drop those costs is not going to happen, but there are complex technology solutions people working on to lower those costs, and it will happen. When do I think it will happen? Well, the oil sands already happen. It's happening right now. A deep water, ultra deep water... I'm going to say it's at least a decade away, at least 10 years away. There'll be incremental changes, right? Um, But it's, I think, at least 10 years, because not only does the technology and the processes have to be invented and approved, but companies have to want to adopt them. And that's going to be, that's what's going to slow everything down. So I can't see any of that stuff happening any quicker than the next decade, but it will happen. And like I said, if that's valuable to you as your role as an analyst at PBVA, go ahead and use it.
1: All right. Last question uh, is from Anonymous. I'm in a sales leadership role for a large service company that has a strong market share globally. Uh, We've done okay even through the downturn. However, I'm concerned that even through our marketing budget has basically uh, remained the same, the results they drive decrease every year. And even though I have asked the question a dozen times, nobody can explain what is going on. Is this just an isolated case or is this a trend in the industry? Uh, Any help that you can provide would be appreciated. Love the show. Just didn't want this to get back to my management team. (laughs) Completely
2: understand. Uh, you want to take that one, Patrick? Yeah, I really wish he would have said something about the industry he was in or what sector of the industry he was in. He said service. Well, service company. But is are the service company focused on upstream, midstream, downstream? I, I assume upstream. I assume upstream as well. Um, but if it's for a large service company, I'm going to assume their marketing dollars are spent on brand awareness. And those type of marketing campaigns, it's going to get your name out there. But I don't know if they're really – it's not results-driven marketing. It's – it's sponsoring things. It's making sure your logo's seen everywhere. But as much as your sales team can rely on that, it's, you know, you're not going to get turned away at the reception desk. I have I'm, some I'm thoughts gonna, on this too. Um, I'd li- yeah, I'd li- and I'd like to know what he, what he means. You know, the, the budgets stayed the same. Was, that's a good thing. The budget stayed the same, but you know, what results are actually decreasing, but yeah, jump in Mark. Go ahead. So I'm watching this happen right now. I've been watching it happen for a while. And what happens is it used to be that your marketing
0: department did a lot of stuff like, Expos, events, sponsoring athletic teams, shooting things, golf games, a lot of print advertising. And that worked up until this downturn when a lot of the senior people left. And this younger generation that came in, Jake and I spoke at Geo Convention, and I did the research for this. This younger generation come in, they find almost none of that valuable. So less than 4% subscribe to any trade publication, right? Less than 10% find any of the conferences or expos valuable. What they want is when they want information, instead of going to a conference and learning about well control, they pick their cell phone up and they learn about well control when they want to learn about well control. They don't have to drive anywhere. They don't have to get a hotel room. They don't have to get approval for the ticket. And so it's fundamentally changing the impact that this industry's marketing departments had, and unfortunately, our marketing departments in our industry haven't adopted. How many of them are even on social, much less use it? How many of them actually have an informative, useful, helpful website other than a catalog website? So I think that's what you're running into. You're not alone. I see it everywhere, and and unfortunately, there's companies out there that see the same thing I'm seeing that that would bring somebody on like Patrick to help them fix that. And the companies that do that are going to pull far ahead of the companies that don't get it yet. And unfortunately, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a lot of, a lot of blue water out there right now. Yeah. It's, um, and you know, unfortunately it's some very big companies are probably going to lose a bunch of market share. I mean, the fact that you're listening to this podcast, this podcast is new media. This is us reaching out to the younger audience and they like us. They love us that work in the oil and gas industry. So I'm going to ask anonymous is your company doing things like podcast probably not so you know it's and it's not you that's whole industries like this but but companies need to change the way they market because the way they market is not driving the same sales results as it did five or ten years ago those same dollars don't drive the same sales closed sales as they did five or ten years ago it's it's not that you it's not that they're doing anything wrong they're doing stuff that worked in the past that just doesn't work as well in the future
2: yeah, and what you just mentioned about one of our our guests on the Youngest HSE podcast getting a deal from a single podcast episode—yeah, ten years a- ago—would you have thought that that a multimillion dollar deal would have been closed by an interview over a podcast? Nope. It-
0: <laughs> but it happens now. We got the proof. Yeah. We got the video to prove it. <laughs> all right, now here's the funny tie-in we have with all the podcasts. We have a winner of our Red Wing bag. Remember, somebody asked about Crescent Point Energy. Yeah. Our winner is Jordan Die with Crescent Point Energy. He's a supply chain field representative. Congratulations, Jordan. You won this awesome Red Wing offshore bag. We honestly have nothing to do with this. Red Wing pulls these. We don't know about them until we get them emailed. But we have this, this strange coincidence thing going on with people and companies being mentioned on some podcast, either ours or, or oil and gas, HSE or oil and oil gas industry leaders, or whatever. And then they end up winning something somewhere else. So... Keep submitting questions and keep interacting with us. <laughs> it just looks like it may help you. Um, if you'd like to win your own awesome Red Wing offshore bag, just like Jordan did, really simple, no purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in there and we draw one lucky winner
1: a week. It was funny. Redwing hit me with a with a Facebook ad earlier this weekend. So I started looking at some of the stuff other than the oil and gas PPE. They have some just like really nice like casual boots and shoes and stuff. I don't know if you've seen those.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. We've actually seen them in person, and they do a lot of stuff like if you hunt or if you're um you know in in the military or police.
2: They they have they cover a lot of stuff. It's so not just PPE. I was really yeah. impressed with their their heritage line. So they they pulled out some you know fifty sixty year old molds and are making office wear. That looks like the old work boots from, you know, 50 years ago. Yep, I actually have a pair. That's what I ended up picking up, a pair of the Heritage line. Look at you, Mark. You're so stylish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, weekly rig count is down 2% to 1,000 rigs. Darn it. You know, we don't want it going backwards. We've stagnated. We, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, just hanging out for a little while. So it's to be expected. St- we can't we can't keep trending in the same direction forever. I'm still sticking my 1,300 by the end of this year. <laughs> It's possible. I think so.
2: You put a lot of credit uh, credence into the into the rig count, Mark. I, I look at rig count, length of uh, contract terms, and day rates. And I, uh, rig count seems to go up and down, but the the length of you know the term of the term of the contracts and day rates that get posted, I think, are more telling of what the market's doing. They are. They are. The rig count isn't as important as it used to be, but it's just a fun metric to have on the show. Yeah, yeah it is. And uh oh, what's the uh what's the billboard out on I10 that has the ticker? It's always got the rig count and the oil prices when you're heading out of town. Yeah, what is that? I think it's a machine shop. Yeah. But anyway, let's go to events on
0: deck. So we have Summer Nape coming up next week. Uh, we're all going to be there. All the podcasts are going to be there. We'll be there as press. We'll be recording podcasts from Nape. Uh, Nape is a North American Prospect Expo. If you're in Upstream in any shape or fashion or want to be in Upstream or want to learn about Upstream, especially on land, come to the show. It it's, it's one of our favorite shows. It's one of my favorite shows. The reason is it's the only show I know that people go to to either buy or sell something. And so the atmosphere is totally different. It's high energy. There's millions of dollars of deals done during the show, after the show, in the all the uh, cocktail events and everything. So we'll be there. If you if you go, hit us up on Twitter. We'd love to meet you and chat with you in person. If you'd learn, like to learn about NAEP and other shows, I have a monthly email where we take all the oil and gas conferences and expos and events and put them in one place in your inbox once a month. We charge you nothing for it. And often we give away free stuff like tickets to OTC. So Jacob put a link in the show notes for that. We talked about First Friday Q&A because we're doing it right now. If you'd like to have your question uh, answered on First Friday Q&A, go to com. Click ask a question, submit it. We'll give you a big shout out if we ask you a question on the air. And then if you like the show, can you do us a favor leave us a review? We're getting ready to, we actually already ordered some very unique OGGN, Oil and Gas Global Network lapel pins. These are one of a kind. You can't buy them anywhere. They're going to be in high demand. And we're going to start giving them away for people that leave reviews. We're going to take all the reviews that we get in a month. We're going to put in a bucket and we're going to pull one name a month. And we're going to give you one of these lapel pins. Your friends and your coworkers will be super super jealous if you get one of these so leave us a review it helps us spread the word and it helps you win something that you can't get anywhere else uh, we have patrick on the show patrick and i are a host of oil and gas hs go set that go check that show out and then also uh, check out pages so oil and gas industry leaders uh, we're all doing some cool stuff there we got some new shows coming out um, soon um, so just stay tuned if you'd like to learn about what's going on with new shows Make sure you join our LinkedIn group, Oil & Gas Global Network. Um, It is where we will announce all the new shows. Um, It's like our family to all the podcasts. People help each other. There's some good uh, content out there. So if you haven't joined LinkedIn group, go do that. And then uh, if you like the show, can you do us a favor and just share it? Uh, Share it with your coworkers. Share it with your families, with your friends, all that sort of stuff. Anything you do to help us get the word, we'd appreciate it. Uh, Patrick, it was cool having
2: you on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you all having me. I hope I added some some valuable insights and uh, your audience enjoyed it. Definitely. Uh, 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 Jake, are we ready to get out of here?
1: Yeah, let's do it, man.
2: All right,
0: folks. Do great work. Pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.